It's wrestling camp season, folks, and the Frog Ninja Wrestling Club is hosting a camp this summer, Tuesday, June 21st through Thursday, June 23rd, taking place in Oxford, PA. They have clinicians Mark Hall, Penn Associate Head Coach Brian Pearsall, and David McFadden. Register now at frogninjawrestlingclub.com. That's frogninjawrestlingclub.com. Wrestling was a spiritual journey, regardless of the good people, regardless of the bad people. It's what I took from it. And I learned discipline. I learned sacrifice. I learned hard work. And eventually the shit pays off. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. This is your host, Ryan Warner. The Wrestling Changed My Life podcast, proudly presented by Spartan Combat. And this interview is with Antonio McKee. Antonio McKee was a California state champion and two-time junior college state champion for Cerritos College back in the 80s. He then went on to have an MMA career that spanned 20 years. Now he's a coach. He coaches at the Body Shop out in Southern California where he's worked with his son, AJ McKee, who's one of the top prospects in Bellator, Aaron Pico, Chuck Liddell, Tito Ortiz, the who's who, folks, of MMA legends from Southern California. And in this interview, we go into Antonio's background. He had a very challenging life growing up. And I will say, foul language is used throughout this interview, folks. And there's some really graphic scenes that Antonio describes. So just keep that in mind. We also talk about his highly talked about match with John Smith. That's the best way I can put it. Because there's a lot of debate over whether or not this match happened. Was it an exhibition? Was it an official match? Antonio shares his side of it. And I can't wait for you to hear this interview, folks. Enjoy. Fan of the week goes to Ted Carroll, a high school coach out in Milton, Massachusetts. He listens to this podcast while he's driving the Mass Turnpike to and from Boston. Ted, I spent about eight weeks out in Boston in the summer of 2014. I loved it. Thank you so much for listening to this show. Now let's get to the interview with Antonio McKee. Antonio McKee, welcome to the Wrestling Change My Life podcast, sir. Thank you for having me, man. Honored to be here. It's been a long time. Man, it's so good to have you. I know we connected through through Uncle Chael, and you know through that I got to learn 
little bit about your background and, and you were someone who truly has had your life defined and shaped by wrestling. Take us back to the early days. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Long Beach, California. Actually, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I was born in Dayton, Ohio. And then my mother, uh, you know, being so young, she was pregnant at like 13. So she had to get out of there. So she left and uh, she almost lost her life because she was so young having a child. She, you know, had complications being that young. So she had a lot of internal bleeding. So she went where the treatment was in Nashville. She went to Nashville, Tennessee, where my family was residing and she got the help. And, you know, she was a baby raising a baby. And uh, so I ended up in Nashville and that's why I grew up the first eight years of my life. And what uh, was, what was your reality like growing up? You know, at that age, I only knew what I was living and I didn't know anything existed outside of that. And, you know, I'm great to be able to understand it now that I still, I'm, I'm, I, that I made it. I, you know what I mean? I was one of those statistics that no one thought would make it. And I was always told at a young age that I wouldn't make it to be 10. I wouldn't make it to be 12. I wouldn't make it to 13. I'd be dead by the time I'm 18. Um, and I kind of understood as I got older why I was being told that. Because the course, the life that I was starting to take uh, a path in, uh, a lot of confusion, um, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. Unlike most kids who have a mother or who have a father and a mother, I, I had the streets. Um, I was such a problem child. I was just angry. I was angry at the world. And uh, I went through a lot of stuff. And, you know, I ended up uh, in a mental hospital for psychiatric evaluation. And from that point, they had realized that I was smart, you know, and then from there I was taking tests and they realized that uh, I just needed a, to, to learn how to take that energy and do something constructive because I was very quick, you know, always thinking, always going, always moving. And uh, we know it as today is ADHD, but uh, I was extremely active. I'm 52 years old right now and I'm just a fireball. I can't stop, I can't sleep, I go, 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 go. And I can only imagine what I was like being a child with no structure. I didn't respond to discipline. I was numb to pain, just life full of just pain and hurt, you know? Um, so immediately I started to develop a thick skin and that thick skin uh, became what I used to survive. Not saying that it was the right thing to do, but it was what I knew and how I had been surviving. Um, I refused to be a part of gangs. I refused to be into drugs. Uh, I was completely the kind of guy that would take care of people who were being bullied. I was the smallest guy, but yet I would defend those that were being bullied. Um, I had a quite fine relationship for some reason, it was really weird, but I had, you know, you're going to get my interview wrong, bro. I'm not candy coating it. It is what it is. It may make some people cry. It may make some people feel a certain type of way, but I'm just telling the story how I know it. So, you know, if I use some words that may offend people, that's not what my intentions are, but this is my form of expressing my passion for what I went through. So, you know, uh, I was very fond of, uh, white people because I lived in the ghetto. I lived at 612 South 7th Street, um, Nashville, Tennessee. And from there, I lived with my grandmother in University Courts. University Courts was the murder capital of Nashville. And still to this day, if you Google it, it's the murder capital. Uh, I grew up seeing a lot of violence, a lot of killing, a lot of murdering, a lot of drugs. And at that time, I think there was a lot of racial tension. And so I used to always run over the bridge and go to uh, the Grand Ole Opera. And I used to watch Dolly Parton. I didn't know who she was, but I used to sneak and watch her perform, you know? So at a very young age, I got turned out. 
you know, as far as I had uncles and uh, cousins that were grown teenagers and these were the things that they were into. So I was subject to that stuff, but I just knew I was, I wanted to be different. I said, this can't be me. This is not going to be me at the time, but I didn't know how to get out of it. So then uh, I ended up one time getting caught up with the KKK. They were having a Klan's meeting and I didn't know nothing about the Klan's meeting. I'm at the river trying to uh, score some fish because I used to go to the river and fish. My grandmother would take uh, cornmeal. It cost, uh, I think it was like 15, 25 cents for some cornmeal, jiffy cornmeal. And I would get the fish at the river and I'd take it home to my grandmother and she would cook the fish. And I was never supposed to go alone. And I went down there and, and this is when I, I had a reality check. Um, I accidentally ended up in a Klan meeting and I almost lost my life. Um, but there was a voice talking to me the whole time. What happened? Telling me, well, I, I was at the river fishing and they were having a Klan meeting on the hillside of Shelby Bridge. Yeah, I remember this stuff because it's grained in me. And this, this is how I developed as a person. Um, I remember I was at the bottom of Shelby Bridge and there was a little area where I used to fish and I'm really afraid of snakes. There were water moccasins and I was always afraid of snakes. And I was down there trying to get some fish, trying to be a big boy so I could surprise my grandmother and come home and I got all these fish. And my uncle wasn't with me. And I ended up running to a clans meeting and they were, they surrounded me. And I remember them asking me, uh, hey nigger, what are you doing down here? Uh, um, come with us nigger, you know? Um, and I could sense it. I didn't understand it, but I could sense something's not right. Something was telling me something's not right. And uh, they, they, they started walking me. They say, come, come go with us. And I was in the middle and they were like a circle and they were pushing me and we were walking going under the bridge and I was always scared of the water markets and snake uh so I was like oh my gosh I started to panic and then I kind of stopped and the guy pushed me and he snatched my fish pole and when he snatched my fish pole he snatched it from the back so when it came to the rear of me the hook went in and it it, it, oh. it ripped me in my mouth and it ripped all the you know I still got a scar right here from it and it ripped all the flesh out and then that's when I knew, like, this is bad. So what they were going to do is I was, they were going to walk me up to the top of Shelby Bridge and they were going to push me over. And I guess it would look like a suicide, I guess. So as we're walking, I'm just trying to figure out, like, how I'm going to get out of here. A lot of men. I was a little kid. And so right when we got to the top of the, uh, the hill, I took off running through one of the guy's legs. And I ran into one of these concrete poles that were circles and they were all stacked up in a row. And I ran in there and I, I hid, I woke up. I think I got knocked out or they threw fire in there and the fire was going to, I don't know what happened, but I remember I woke up and it was like going on dawn and I, I had blood all over my shirt. They were throwing rocks and bottles in there. And I guess they were hitting me and cutting me up. And maybe one must've hit me in the head and I went unconscious, but I woke up and when I left, I got home and it was dark and I lived in the projects, which was over the bridge. So when I got home, um, I went into the projects and I got in trouble again because I shouldn't have been out at the river by myself, but I never told anybody what happened until later. So at that point I, I started to develop, uh, you know, a hatred toward white people. Um, I didn't like white males. And so I would, I told my uncle what had happened and, you know, back South, you know, it, it was a little different in the seventies. And so he sat me down and he started teaching me about black history. He started teaching me about who I was and 
like, you know, telling me that white people were the devil and they're evil and you got to be careful. So my whole life was kind of like, I was really intrigued by that. And I find, found myself wrestling as a vent to, to just this anger out, this frustration. I was so angry at the world and I just want to hurt everybody. But I was hurting, you know. Um, and so I was fighting every day. Fighting, 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 drug dealers fighting. I was a little kid and I was probably like four, five, four, nine, but I had a heart of a lion. And so uh, one of the local drug dealers said, hey, you want to you want to you want to work with me? Because I was a bully in the neighborhood of the guys that were bullies. I never mm -hmm. bothered innocent people. I was just the kind of guy that tried to do right against people who did wrong. And so, you know, one thing led to another man. And uh, I mean, I'm going to try to break this story up because. I could tell you it, it, this shit gets crazy. Well, tell me uh, about like, tell me about. So when you're living in that environment and this is before you get in wrestling, you're living in that environment. Like who's raising you? Is your mom around or is she on drugs? Like who's like your guardians? My guardian was my auntie who had three or four of her own kids who was raising all of everybody else's kids. But I was a problem child because I was, I wouldn't conform. I was disobedient. I was just, man, I was hell on wheels, you know? And I, to this day, I give her whatever she wants because I realized what she had to deal with. So when they checked me into a mental hospital for psychiatric evaluation, they had determined that I was really smart. And so they said, well, we need to figure out what field he's smart in. So I went to this school in Nashville called Cumberland House. It was a, it was a, a youth program for kids who were having issues, uh, but were smart. It was mm -hmm. like a gifted program school. And there, um, they were molesting the kids. And it was just a bunch of, you, if you Google all this stuff, man, it comes up. Because people are like, man, this kid's lying. There's no way all this stuff happened to him. So they go and Google it. So I always tell people, go Google it. And, you and how pull old up you? And Sorry. I was going to say, how old were you when you were at that hospital? Uh, I was probably eight, between eight and 10 years old. That young. But see. Wow. The thing is, I was really mature for an eight-year-old. The stuff I was talking about, because I went and looked at some of the files, and everyone was just amazed at uh, my intelligence. Like, this kid is really smart, right? Um, so, you know, they were interested in me. Like, how is he so smart, but yet so bad? So, you know, that one thing led to another. And I eventually, I, I tested out of the program. And I just wanted to be with my mom. You know, at that time, my mother had picked up, packed up, and she was in the entertainment industry, and she came to California, from California to Atlanta. Like, you know, my life was all over the place, and I just wanted to be with my mom. Um, so I acted out until I got what I wanted, and so finally they said, look, let's try to put him with his mom. Come to California, I'm 12 years old. Now, before I got to California, I was molested as a child, so I was really, really messed up. Um, but I always had a good heart, so... When I got to California, um, there were certain things about me that I just didn't understand, and I just continued to act out. So they tested me in California. I ended up going to Hughes uh, Elementary, was, which was for a, a magnet program for smart kids because I tested really high. Um, but coming from the ghetto, I didn't have the know-how to sit in a classroom with the level of intelligence that I did on the test scores. I didn't have the classroom behavior. I had no structure. I wasn't brought up like that. I'm an animal. You know what I mean? In mm -hmm. a cage. And the cage was the ghetto. 
and then you take me out of this place and you put me in a classroom setting, I didn't, I didn't have that. And so I became a menace to the class. I became um, a distraction. I was called uh, nigger, buckwheat. At that time, the little rascal was big. I was really dark and I had this poof out hair. So people would make fun of me, calling me buckwheat. And just, you know, I lashed out immediately with violence and fighting. And, uh, you know, it, it, got, it got a little worse. So now I'm in the hood. They take me out of the, the, the nice environment, the special school for smart kids. And they put me back in my environment which I'm, I'm smart, so I'm not really like these guys. I'm not this gangbanger. I'm not, I'm not this drug dealer. I'm just a weirdo. You know, the way I looked at it, I'm just a weird dude. But I would work for everything that I own. I take out trash, cut grass. So one day, um, this drug dealer saw me and he says, hey, you want to work with me? And I was selling drugs at 12 years old. I didn't even know what I was doing. I just go to the door to get the crack or the weed, and they did it. But I was homeless, so he gave me a place to live. He said, if you want to live here, you, when I, when someone comes to the door and they want a $20 or $10, you give them this tray or this tray, they take the money, put it on there. So I did that for about six months, maybe a year. I don't remember. In the meantime, my mother's out chasing life of fame, but I think she's going through some other issues, uh, chemical addictions and choice of men were not good. And so now I'm, uh, I'm even damaged more. And so the drug dealer started kind of getting to know me and he said, you're different. I want you to figure out something that you want to do. I don't want this for you. That guy's no longer alive, so I can talk about him. Um, and he said, you're different. Pick out something you want to do. And I said, I like to fight. So he took me to a boxing gym. Muhammad Ali had a gym in Long Beach on uh, Long Beach Boulevard. And I went into the gym. I was introduced to some guy. I don't remember who it was. I wanted to fight. They want me to do jump rope and hit bags, structured discipline. I didn't have that. I want to fight. So they wouldn't let me fight. I told them, I don't want to do this no more. So I was sitting at a bus stop with some wrestling shoes on that were boxing shoes, right? Mm -hmm. But I couldn't afford boxing shoes, so I had wrestling shoes on. So this big heavyweight walking by, he looked at the wrestling shoes. He says, you wrestle? And I go, no, I box. He said, oh, those are, you, you should probably wrestle. And I was like, there's nobody better than me. I was a cocky little kid. You know what I mean? I said, there's nobody that can beat me. He says, come into the gym tomorrow. We got a guy that he'll kick your butt. I mean, nobody kicking my butt. I'm beating up grown men. I'm a kid. I went into that gym. It was Long Beach Poly High School. This kid kicked my ass. And I couldn't understand it because he was small like me. And I'm beating up grown men. And he kicked my ass all over the mat. And I went home and I thought about it. And they were like, man, you're really tough. You're really tough. You should come back. And I'm like, I just got my ass handed to me by some Filipino kid with a head this big. <laughs> so I, I went back, started wrestling i didn't have any money so i would clean the mats again that 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 anger would lash out and i'd sock people and you know i was just a problem man i was just a hurting child um so now they recognized the skill set that i didn't see that i had so i was like okay you know they're like look we want you to wrestle for us you don't have to pay just you know just you know join the team and train come da 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 so i ended up training 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 my goal was to beat the kid to kick my ass the first day I got there. Within a year, I beat him. And I didn't just beat him. I hurt him. But that was <laughs> anger. So now I'm like high school, getting ready to go to high school. I'm a freshman. And I'm wrestling every day. And are you I'm starting to feel a purpose now? Are you not yet? 
Now I'm getting a high on fucking people up. Okay. I'm getting a high on like, yeah, I want to hurt everybody. That would only work for guys that were like, no disrespect, but a guy like John Smith, he grew up in a house with a mom, a dad, you know, he didn't have that same killer instinct that I had. Mm-hmm. I was trying to hurt your ass. I'm trying to break your neck. It wasn't about technique, but as I kept doing it and doing it, I got bored with the kids. So I went in the open division. You can ask anybody that knows me from wrestling. I would go in the open division and I was in high school, junior high, and I'd go up against grown ass men. And I was just, I was getting off on the challenge, right? And the aggressiveness that they were. But really, I was abusing, battered, emotional kid. And so I was thriving on the abuse and batter and wrestling. Mm-hmm. But it was a place to vent. So now that I'm going through all this, by the time I hit high school, I was probably top six wrestler in the state of California as I know it today. Back then, I didn't understand none of this stuff. So, you know, I ended up winning CIF or master. No, actually, I won more leagues. I placed in CIF. At this point, I'm still struggling in the streets, in and out of trouble, going in and out of jail. I think I've been in jail six, 17 times, 15 times for stupid shit. Um, and I'm balancing this life of wrestling versus staying out of the streets. Uh, people made fun of me because of the singlets. They were tight singlets. I would tell all my gang friends to come watch me wrestle. And they were like, cuz, you a fag, nigga, you got that tight ass singlet on. And so I started wearing a big boy singlet where I'd sag and look droopy because I was, I thought they thought I was gay, so I wouldn't wear the tight singlet. But as I got better and better, by my junior year, I was a name known, but I didn't know I was a name known, but I was a I was a I was like a Mike Tyson. I'm a train wreck, but I had this athletic ability. Ray Gamonico, uh, which at the time was a coach. He came in, took it over, took over the program, taught me some things. I started to become really good at wrestling. And as I got better. I started to calm down and didn't want to hurt people as much. So I started to develop technique. And then it became to after my junior year, I think I'd be, I'd be uh, uh, a bunch of guys that we know, Dan Henderson, Heath Sims, uh, Lyndon Campbell, uh, what else, Zeke Jones, uh, Saunders. I started wrestling these elite guys that were wrestling. So they said, hey, man, why don't you go try out and go to the Nationals, you know? Ah, uh, screw that. I didn't want to go. So my junior year, I ended up beating Lyndon Campbell, who was a two-time state champion. But something happened my junior year when I got to, to the California State. I was, I, was, I was emotionally starting to break down. I'm changing. This is what's happening. Now I live with my coach. I live with my other coach. I'm starting to see like the way things are supposed to be, but yet my whole life I've been this way. Wrestling is starting to humble me work my work ethic was through the roof um because that's why i invented um it was a place for me to get rid of my anger my hurt and then it became medicine it became something to help me deal with what i was going through the anxieties so we're at the state championship and you can go look all this stuff up i'm destroying this kid and i look over and his dad is going come on son you can do it come on, son. His mother was there. Yeah, son, you can do it. Come on, come on. His sister was there. I looked at my coach. That's all I had. And I looked at that kid and I told him while we were wrestling, I'm going to let you win. And he looked at me and we kept wrestling and I let him shoot. He took me down. 
I let him take me down again. I was a master on my feet. No one took me down. What? Right? So I let him, what I did, remember Simone in the Olympics, how she just pulled out? That trauma, I knew exactly, I tried to reach out to her to help her. The trauma from my childhood, as I'm starting to change, I'm starting to realize how blessed and fortunate I am. And here I am on a big scene and I just stopped wrestling. And my coach goes, what's wrong with you? And I said, I don't want to talk about it. And I let this kid win. And I told him, I said, look, you can win this tournament, right? I didn't know who he was. I was having a meltdown. I let this kid beat me. He loses. I get out because he couldn't carry me. Mm-hmm. So I sat up and his, my coach's dad, he looked at me and he was kind of like a gangster dude. What I saw, like a mafia type guy. And uh, he said, I didn't do this for my son. I did this for you because you're a good kid. Like he paid all my credit card bills off. Like I was a, uh, I was a smart man. I'm talking about, I was a, like a forger. I would do credit card fraud, check scams. Like I was doing this shit at like 17, 16. Right. I was, you know, taking this intelligence, but I was doing r- the wrong thing with it, right? Um, so he said that I did this because I care about you. You're a neat kid. And I started crying. And he just said, you know, um, it's funny because I would never fucking cry. This shit can almost bring tears to me now. I was like, I'm sorry to my coach because all he wanted, all he wanted was a state champ. And I didn't give a fuck about wrestling. You know what I mean? Excuse me for getting teary-eyed, man, because shit, you know, I'm a little older now and I'm, you know, thankful, but I realized I didn't have anybody. This kid had his mom and his dad there. I'm out here fucking around winning 10-2, 10-8, 10-3. And this kid's mom, his dad's there. And I just said, fuck it, I don't want to win. I want him to win because he's got somebody that cares for him. There's somebody that's here for him. And all I had was my coach. And that wasn't enough. My teammates hated me because I was a dick. So I had nobody but my coach who believed in me. And I let him down because all he wanted was a state champion. I didn't understand that as a child coming up. I understand it now as a coach because all I want is to help a kid to do what I went through, right? So that's mm-hmm. why I'm the guy in the hood. Nobody talks about what my accolades are. Nobody, Because they're afraid of the guy that I was. And those guys, Lyndon Camel, John Smith, they run the wrestling program. They're part of USA uh, Wrestling Association, right? So I told my coach, I said, I'm sorry. I said, next year, I'll come back. And I'm going to fuck everybody up. I didn't care who it was. And I made him a promise. And I made myself a promise that I was going to come back and I was going to be the best fucking wrestler that they ever seen. And I took all the critics. I took all the niggers. They called me nigger. They made fun of me because I had a jury curl. And I went through some really painful shit as a black kid that no one understood my fight. No one understood my war. So I put that shit every day as a junior. I went to every wrestling match. I went to freestyle. I did everything. Every I worked so hard because I'm coming back. And you motherfuckers are going to pay. And so, you know what? I became a serious problem in the wrestling world. But I forgot about something. I forgot about grades. Mm-hmm. I couldn't handle school. I was ineligible all year. So at this point, I put all the physical work in, but I didn't put the academic work in. And by the time they had looked at my academics, I was ineligible. And all Damn. I can remember is my, my coach is fucking crying, man. Ray Gamonico, you, you didn't check all this up. I'm not a liar. I'm a real dude, right? 
So now I'm like, fuck, let my coach down. So now I'm mad. I'm getting ready to go out now. I want to die now. I get my guns. I load up. I'm getting ready to go tonight. I'm, I'm going to do whatever comes natural. You have guns? Oh, man, I had more guns than you could. I was different. I wasn't like most guys. I was a smart dude, and I had white friends, and all they talked about was guns and this and that. And then the cartels, I was up in the, to the drugs where my people were dealing directly with the Colombians, directly with the, with the Mexicans, directly with the, the Russians. So I had access to a lot of stuff, right? And I was a different type of dude, so I had a different plan, you know? Um, I got to be careful some of the things that I talk about because I don't want to come back and I don't see my ass in jail. But but this is so during was, like the 80s, like, uh, you know, the crack epidemic yeah. where you got, you know, the Iran-Contra situation going on. You got all kinds of stuff going on. You had Freeway Ricky Ross out there. Yes, uh, yes. That's during this whole era. It's heating up. Well, I, I, was, I worked for Freeway Rick. I cleaned up his car. See, I was a worker. I wasn't a drug seller. Right. I like, look, let me wash your car. Let me take out the trash. Let me do this. And I wash all your clothes. Like I was that kind of guy. I never wanted anything for free. I worked for it. And so I worked my ass off, man. But you know, now I'm so anyway, so you're ineligible though. Yeah. So you're ineligible. Then I'm what ineligible. happens? I'm ready to die today. I let my coach down, let myself down. Mother's chemically on addicted. My sister's an honor roll student. She's out gangbanging, smoking, doing all kinds of stuff that I want to slander her. Uh, but I'm I'm just broken. So I was gonna go out this night and something said, don't go. And I knew what they were gonna do. I got the page, I looked at my pager, I threw it down on the ground, and I just I just had a meltdown. I'm just walking around, I'm got a nine millimeter, a tech nine on me. I'm walking, I'm anybody say something to me, I'm killing them. And I ended up some crackhead man I ended up talking to, he was a druggie. And he sat me down and he was like an old millionaire back in his time. And he talked to me about some stuff. And the next thing is morning time. The next day I'm reading the newspaper and the guys that I was going to go with, this is the first time, the guys that I was going to go with, they were, they went in to go do a robbery and they all got killed except for one guy. And he was looking at six murders. And it was actually two guys, three guys that was with him. I would have been the fourth guy and they were going to rob a drug house. Got it. But they, the drug house got tipped off. So when they came, the, the, the guys were ready. And so it was a big shootout and everybody that got killed, well, this guy particularly did, lived. And of course, the guys that were in the house because they were tipped off. Uh, so he ends up doing like getting a life sentence. Right. He's still in jail to this day. Really? So I was like, damn. I'm like, shit. Had I not met the crackhead on the corner, sat down at Blue Star bought me breakfast and talked to me, I would have been with them. So I was like, man, maybe, 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 maybe I'm not supposed to do this. Went back to wrestling practice, told my coach, I'm sorry, is there any way you can get me eligible? My coach says, I'm going to see what I can. Yeah, I'm not going to expose teachers, but a lot of things were just done. And I made a promise to every teacher that gave me the, the stuff to do for makeup Give me that opportunity. I won't be disruptive in your class no more. I'll get this work done and I'll pass all the tests. So for two months, day in, day out, all I did was study. In the meantime, my friends are robbing, stealing, killing, robbing, stealing, killing, drug dealers, big drug dealers. Now the big drug dealers, some are dead, Snoop, 
Warren G, Nate Dogg, all those guys, they're afraid of me because I'm a, I'm a whack job in the streets, but they didn't know I was changing. So my old reputation, I didn't want it anymore. I'm, I'm battling these books. I get to one grade and it was U.S. government history. I refused to pass it, right? Because U.S. government history versus remember when I was in Nashville, my uncle educated me on black and white. The stuff that I was taught as a child, what I was seeing in the history books to me was a lie. Mm-hmm. I said, no, Nat Turner was not a villain. What? All the raping and all the stuff that these people did to my people and everything that I was reading about Christopher Columbus, which was bull crap, and he wasn't the first person. So I was rebelling against the class. You were challenging right? them. And she didn't want to change the grade because she said, uh, but, but she said, if you take this class, do a report, and on this report, you turn it in, you pass it, and I'll, I'll change your grade. And you will sit in my class and not be disruptive anymore. Because I used to challenge everything she said. Nat Turner was a villain and he was hung. I go, excuse me, teacher. Nat Turner was not a villain. He was a man that was tired of being, watching his people. You know what I mean? I was mm-hmm. that kind of kid. Mm-hmm. So she, uh, I did it, passed it, and I wrote the report on the American government system for Blacks, slavery, wow. the slave trade. The, the, we, we don't need to get it. That's a whole nother topic. But anyway, I'll stay focused. So she was really impressed. Her name was Miss Holland. She looked at the paper and she said, I knew you were smart. She said, but this report, and she framed it. She framed my report, put it on the wall, gave me a start passing. Now we're in, we're in rest. Full throttle, baby. I got the guy, I got the grades. I'm telling my coach, I went in the CIF. I was O and O and O, right? What? Went in CI. Uh, I went into more league O and O because I was ineligible all year. Right. There was a big controversy once I got to Masters of State because they was upset and they at that time they knew what was coming and I was I was an angry ass kid. I beat. I went undefeated from my junior year, my senior year, and two years in a row in college. So that's almost four years undefeated. Didn't give up even a takedown. I may even give up two takedowns. Wait, so did you win uh, state so, as a senior? Yes, I won a state. Tell me about I the moment been, when you won and you embraced your coach, though. That had to be special. You know what? Nobody knew what we had. Nobody knew the relationship. No one knew that this wasn't for me. This was for my coach, right? I had the toughest. It was the toughest weight class that they had ever seen in Southern CIL state championship. It was me, Greg Jackson. I think uh, uh, Greg Jackson, uh, Camacho, uh, Watts Carruthers from Poway, uh, Rodriguez. The, the weight class was insane. Um, so they tried to change the formula. I don't know what formula it was, but I remember them having meetings about the formula of how it was going because they, the way the formula CF structure was, all these guys over here, we're going to beat each other up. Mm-hmm. And then I had the winner of the guys that were beating each other up on the back bracket, right? And I'm nailing their asses down one at a time. Boom, bang, boom, bang, boom, bang, boom, bang. I'm in the, I'm in the, who was I in the finals with? I don't remember. It might have been Heath Sims. I, I don't remember. But I'm in the final. No, Heath Sims was a weight class below. I'm in the finals with uh, uh, Watts Carruthers, who beat Camacho, who beat Jackson. I had beat Jackson in Masters. I beat everybody in Masters. And so now I'm in the finals. I got booed the whole tournament. 
boo, boo. I was like 9 and 0, 10 and 0, 11 and 0. These guys were 42 and 0, 42 and 1. And I'm like, I had this swag. I had a cowboy hat. You know, I'm from the South. I had a cowboy hat with straw. I'm a, a buster, but I had my coach's wrestling shoes on, you know, and I'm in the finals against Watts Carruthers. He's winning, but I'm starting to break down again, right? And he pushes me into the clock. And I'm known as the bad boy, you know, this and that. And I'm like, he pushes me into the clock and he goes, get up, get up. Yeah, McKee, you ain't so tough. And I looked at him and I ran back to cock my hands to swing on him. And my coach grabbed me and he goes, no, that's not how you do it. That's not how you do it. And the score, well, I don't even know what the damn score was, but it was all one or two points difference. And it went in the third round. I choose down. He's stalling. And I'm talking to him during the match. I'm calling him a pussy, you little fucking pussy. Why don't you let me go? Let's do the winner. Let the winner take, take down. Let the winner take off. And he's just holding me and stalling while I'm talking to him. The referees are giving him a warning, warning for stalling because I keep getting to my feet and he's just. Right. 10 seconds left on the clock. You ask anybody that was there. Now the crowd is against me, right? They've been booing me the whole time. The momentum is intense and we go into overtime. I go back to the corner and look at my coach. My coach, I said, coach, you love me? He goes, yeah. I said, I'm going to fuck him up. And you know what I did? I went out there and I fucked Watts up. I fucked him up so bad he started crying. Damn. Right? It wasn't over because after they raised my hand and I won the state championship, the crowd is fucking cheering for me. I don't understand this. So I flipped everybody off. Ask people. I flipped the whole thing <laughs> off. Like F, F yeah. all of you. F all of you. Because you guys booed me all the way through the tournament. Boo, boo. And I'm like, fuck all you. You know, that was the only thing I knew other than punch somebody. So as the crowd is cheering for me and I'm flipping them off, my coach is like, you know, tell me, hey, you know what? Don't do that. Don't do that. And I'm like, no, fuck these people. They didn't have my back. I'm still street mentality, right? Yeah. So as I'm seeing this, we get to the back and I see Terry Watts. And I said, motherfucker, let's go outside. Let's go outside. I'm going to beat your ass again, right? And he's over there crying. And I don't understand crying because there was no crying coming out of me. My life was too jacked up to cry. And so I won the state championship. My coach I live with, I kept going back and forth to jail because now wrestling season is over. I'm back in my hood. So what were you going to jail for? Like just like minor stuff or like anything big? Yeah, I never caught a felony. Um, I became a really smart businessman. And um, I went to jail for uh, possession of a firearm, um, driving a suspended license, $60,000 worth of traffic warrants, failure to appear to the courts, accessory to car tampering, uh, accessory to car burglary. Uh, how did you shit. stay out of sell? How did you stay out of like selling like selling hard drugs back then? Because people were going to jail a long time for that kind of stuff. Because I had family that was selling it. And then I had family that was using it. Mm. I didn't even drink alcohol. My coach got me drunk for the first time. I didn't do anything. I don't think I would be here if I did that because then I would have really not cared. Right. But there was a part of me inside that always would tell me something's not right. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. So wow. immediately, you know, I run off and everyone's bragging about Antonio McKee, Antonio McKee, Antonio McKee. I didn't understand those people bragging because I'm still in the hood. 
Bobby Douglas saw me and walked up to me and he said, we pull your transcripts and you could never wrestle for us because of your grades and something, and it don't matter how good you are because of your grades, you would never make it to a division one. And I, I told him to fuck off. I told so, Bobby Douglas to oh fuck off. But see, that's my language. Right. I don't come, I didn't come up in a household where it's, hey, Bobby, you know, man, you, you know, that's not the thing. That, I grew up in a household where it's, we live a different vocabulary. I'm from right. the streets, but I'm slowly starting to get it. So I was able to control it. But when I got mad, I pop off. I told Bobby Douglas, I didn't even know who Bobby Douglas was. So, you know, at this point, I go to Cerritos College. How'd you end up there? Uh, just, it was a wrestling program. That program that I went through during the, my junior, my senior year of being ineligible, I wrestled in the night program. And I was kicking the college guys' asses. So the coach was always trying to recruit me, Jeff Smith. Um, and he wrestled for Michigan, Michigan State. So when I uh, got done with high school, he said, look, I know your situation. Um, I'll give you a job. I'll help you out, you know, and get you some aid. And you can come and go to Cerrito College. Well, I didn't graduate high school. I was going to say, did you graduate high, high school? school? No, because I refused to pass U.S. government history. They wanted me to take another test. And I said, I'm not taking any more of your fucking tests. This is the most racial shit I've ever seen. And you guys are perpetuating this racist bullshit. And the lady, there was a black lady, Muslim, whatever. She said, listen, you need that piece of paper. She said, you have to play the game. And I, I, didn't, I didn't understand what she was talking about back then. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing it. F, F this, F that. And I went and enrolled in JC College. Became a successful wrestler there. But at that particular time, dude, I was division one then. Right. Okay. And I'm going to walk you to the John Smith thing. So now I'm in college. I'm in and out of jail. I'm in and out of jail. Even in college, I carry a gun in college. I mean, I'm still, still hustling. Stuck from my childhood. I'm living in fear that I'm no longer this person, but yet I have a nice car now. I have money. I had all the ladies. You know, I had all this jewelry. Like I'm ghetto fabulous, right? So now I become the target. Now, this is the crazy part. Now, I didn't understand the fight between the blacks and Mexicans because I was always wrestling. So I didn't really see color like that. You're white, Mexican, black, white, Asian. But I lived in Norwalk. Okay, do the math. Early, late 90s, Norwalk. The one ways. Late 80s or 90s? This was the early, the late 80s, like 89. Late 80s, okay. There is a huge drug issue. The cartels ran the one ways, which is in the city of Norwalk. I lived in one ways in an apartment complex. And I'm kind of like that guy. So when people say, well, why were you carrying a gun? Well, I'm being attacked by Mexicans. And I didn't understand. So now it's not even that I'm a bad person anymore. But the people that I'm hanging out with, their family don't like black people. I'm dating Mexican girls. Their brothers are, hey, don't date black. Da, da, da. Like, I'm dating white girls, their, their mothers, their fathers were treating their daughters different because of me. I wasn't probably the most polished guy, but I started to experience this racial tension. Mm -hmm. And so immediately I started to resort back to my childhood, shutting down. Wrestling wasn't good enough now because I'm trying to do things right and I'm running, I'm doing things. There's, there's some stuff that I'll tell you off the records that I went through that, you know, I had participated in to survive. Right. And so I made it through 
I went to jail again, went to jail again. Now I went to jail on Cerritos College campus, uh, Lasting. I got into it with the whole team. I told I'll kill all you MFers. And I pulled out a big jack, a 357 Magnum, whole bus hit the ground. Security of the, the campus is called. And Tony McKee has a gun. I give it to my girlfriend. She takes off. She was a Japanese girl. So no one ever thought that the Japanese girl had the gun. So they're tearing my car, looking for the gun. But they take me on warrants that I had from 1985, 80, 85, 86. And they, they would always let me out. But this time they took me in, fingerprint me, whole little my coach came to the judge. They had a conversation. And my mother was there. And I remember the people that I was with was doing something bad. I wasn't doing anything bad. I was just with them. Mm-hmm. We were in Balboa Island, Bosa Chica. You know, uh, the Balboa Island. I don't know if you know California, but that's a very yeah. elite area of wealth. And I used to go there because I had the Volkswagen. I love my Volkswagen. So I fit in with the white boys, not thinking that I'm black. I just think I'm a person. And they would try to, you know, jack me from a car. I mean, it was hooked up. And so my brother was six foot, on swole, darker than light, night. And so he would beat him up and we would fight. So we went, I ended up going to jail there. And my coach came to the, to the, the rescue for the third or fourth time. And he got me out. They gave me an OR, gave me an OR only cognizance or whatever. And so my mother was in the court and I looked at my mom. She looked a hot mess. I looked at my sister. She was sucking on her fingers like this. Her braids were all messed up. And I looked at everybody in the court. And I looked at my coach. Six, six, big dude. He had his little suit jacket on. And they called him to the stand. And they said, uh, is there anybody here on behalf of Antonio McKee? Public defender said, yes, Your Honor, da, 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 They talked. Um, the judge takes my coach. He does a break before sentencing to figure out what he's going to do. He took a short recess and he went back with my coach. And my coach is kind of like me. He said, listen, this kid's a good kid. I've got him, you know, in college. He gets in trouble when he goes back to his neighborhood. Um, This situation, I don't know what happened, but I can guarantee you, if you ask him what happened, he'll tell you. They looked at it. They got the story. And he said, uh, if, 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 uh, you feel the right thing to do is to let him go. I can promise you this. This kid will be one of the greatest athletes that we've ever seen. And the judge told him, if that boy ever comes back in this courtroom again, I'm going to hang him with some time. Because I had, a, I had a, a, a big arrest record. I've been in jail a lot of times, but never stayed long in 30 days. If you had to guess right? how many times you've been arrested, more than 20 at that age? More than four. More than 20. Huh? have I been arrested more than 20 times? Like at this time in your life, like are you in and out like all the time? Like you've been arrested probably yeah, 10, 15 times? I would say times? between 12. I'd probably say, man, honestly, I would probably say between eight and 12. Okay. You so know you've what been I mean? in and out of the on. system. You know what I mean? Um, and I looked, they let me out. My coach waited for me. We were driving. He was driving me home, which I lived with my girlfriend. And her dad did not like, not only did he like her dating me, but he didn't like her dating a black man. Mm-hmm. She was Japanese and white. And so her dad was like awful, but I used to sleep up under her bed or sleep in her closet. You know what I mean? I didn't have a place to live. Um, so I remember he was driving me to her house and I looked at him and I said, coach, I go, how'd you get me out of jail? And tell me exactly what, 
what, what, what the judge said. And he looked at me because me and my coach Smith, he'll tell you, you interview him. We were like this. He said, well, he said, that boy comes back in this court or gets caught up again, I'm going to send him upstate to do some time. And I looked at my coach and I said, coach, I'm, I'm grateful for you. Same scenario when I was in high school. You know what I mean? Same scenario. I looked at him and I said, I, I started crying. I looked at my coach and I started crying and I go, coach, how can I pay you back? What can I do for you? What can I do for you? He's like, well, I just want you to wrestle. I want you to be the best wrestler in the world. And I want you to go to a four-year, uh, uh, what do you say, a division one. And I want you to win a gold medal. I was that good, but I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like you had no idea about like the college circuit and like the Olympic trials and all that. It was kind of like foreign to you. Man, that shit didn't exist because I didn't know it. Right. But I tell you what, Dan Henderson, dad, the Jets, his dad coached the Jets. The reason why I know these guys' names, because these guys scarred me. They scarred a part of me in my coming up in wrestling. Dan Henderson's dad, they, I think he coached the, the team called the Jets. And the Jets were like a national team. I, they didn't recruit me, right? So I got upset. I ended up winning the Nationals because of it. I, I beat up Don Fry. I beat him up. I tried to break his neck. I, I mean, I was good, but I didn't know it, right? Right. So, you know, let me continue. So I get out. We're driving in the car. I looked at him and I started crying. And those were the same tears. It was, it was hurt. At the time, it was hurt. And I started crying and I go, what can I do for you, coach? That you were able to come in here. You took time every day and you get me out of jail. My own mom couldn't get me out of jail. And you get me out of jail. He says, no, I didn't do anything special. I just told him what a neat kid you were. And I told him that you just get into trouble when you go back to your neighborhood. So I advise you not to go back to your neighborhood. And I looked at him. I said, coach, what is it that I can do for you? You gave me a job. You gave me money. You helped me when I was hungry. What can I do for you? And he said, be the best that you can be. You know what? I looked at my coach and I was crying and you can interview him. I looked at him and I wiped my tears up and I said, coach, you know what that means? He goes, no, what does that mean? I go, I'm going to be the baddest nigga you ever coached. I straight <laughs> said that. I said, I'm going to be the baddest nigga you ever coached and I'm going to go undefeated and nobody's going to beat me. Look up the records. I'm what? 70 and oh, zero wins and only got taken down one time. Now, it's crazy because Cerritos College, two-time uh, JUCO champ, undefeated at, at Cerritos College, 88 and 89 California JUCO champ. Hands down, easy. I had Serge Mezzaresti, the Russian, right, in the finals. And, I, I mean, it is what it is. But, anyway, I ended up winning the state. Now, my, that middle year going into being my second year of college, John Smith is um, – John Smith, I didn't know who John Smith was. I only can tell you it was John Smith because after I beat him, I found out who he was. So now everyone's talking about me. I I still don't understand the circuit. I'm going to tournaments. I'm watching the racial shit that they're pulling. And I'm 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 I'm, I'm dialed in on this, man, because I grew up in the South mm-hmm. and I know it when I see it. And I would see matches. I watched Kenny Monday. I watched his match with Dave Schultz, and I'm like, this is bullshit. I watched uh, John Smith, which I didn't know who John Smith was, match against Derek Fisher. I would watch these guys literally get screwed. And I, I didn't get it. Then it happened to me. And then now 
I'm starting to pull away from wrestling because I'm now starting to see the things that I don't like. I called it the good old white boy program. It's what I saw. And so now my drive is to go and create an environment of wrestling for black kids in the ghetto. I start a wrestling program called the Warriors. Aaron Pico, Valencia Brothers, was it Saeed and Saeed and Anthony, Cade Valencia, uh, 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 Red Alicorn, uh, the Rios brothers. I mean, I'm now putting back in the community and no one could coach like I could because I was intense. You know what I mean? And I'm coaching against everything that I've seen. Joy Davis, five years old, training with me since he was five. So I started watching what was going on on the wrestling circuit and I, I didn't like it. And I told my coach, I don't want to do this. So mid that year, John Smith, uh, I get a phone call from J.D. Hawkins, which was a, a mentor to me. J.D. Hawkins was a bad dude. He was a European world champion. And so I started now being mentored by J.D. Hawkins. And they, they set up this exhibition match at Cal State Fullerton. John Smith was there. I didn't know who John Smith was. J.D. Hawkins was there. And J.D. was going to wrestle John Smith. It was to get him ready for the Olympics, I guess, or the Worlds, because he lost to the Cuban right after he lost to me. Now, so I remember he lost the to the Cuban. And uh, so twice he lost to him once at the Cerro Pilato in February. And that was like 89, February of 89, when he lost to Lazaro Reynoso at the Cerro Pilato. See, I didn't know him. That's the key college thing. wrestling, Juco wrestling is over in December. Right. Right. I'm doing freestyle messing around. He's on a circuit doing his camp. Right. And so he sets his camp up. I remember, I think there was, I, I don't remember all the people because I didn't know anybody. I was just thug. I was a thug kid. I wasn't even in the wrestling community like that. But I remember he had to wrestle JD first. There was a referee, there was a timer, and there was a scorecard. Referee. JD had his singlet on. He put his singlet on. I see John Smith, this little frail ass white kid, man. There's no JD's gonna murder his ass. <laughs> JD's off. I don't know if you knew who JD was. No, I don't know him. Was like a beast, like yapped up, just a, a machine. Now I could beat him in college. I could also beat him my my end senior year of of high school. But I respected him, so I would always just kind of let it be close, and I just let him win when we wrestle. You know. So I'm looking at this John Smith guy. I don't know who he is. There's another guy there, which I now know is Pat Smith. He had a cowboy hat on. They had these fucking belt buckles. I'm from the South. Italy, I get it. So they're wrestling. John Smith texts JD in less than two minutes. He shot a low single. He hit the low single to a leg lace. Hit that leg lace. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, match over. Mm -hmm. I'm like, whoa. What the fuck was that? <laughs> John gets up. He he does this with his singlet. He he's like a he's like a gummy to me. Like he's like, this. I'm like, what the fuck just happened? JD walks off the mat. He was he was cool with it. Right. But I'm like, yeah. Then Pat. Somebody says, hey, you guys got anybody else he can exhibition against? And I'm like, I, I don't know who he is. I ain't doing it. He's on some other Olympic shit. So they come over and they say, hey, McKee, 
Why don't you go? I had a jewelry curl. I had curl in my hair, right? They were complaining <laughs> about the grease. They were playing about the fucking grease in my hair. So I got all the grease out of my hair. I did not weigh in at this point. John Smith weighed in earlier, probably. I don't know. I don't remember. So I get all this on. I put on a singlet, and we start to wrestle. Now, I don't know. I still don't know who John Smith is. We're going. John Smith, I don't know why he's lying about this shit. And if I ever see him, I'm like, man, look, I don't mean no disrespect to you. I think you're one of the best decorated wrestlers in the world besides Jordan Burroughs. But you know I fucking beat you. And it's not a big deal. See, you're making a big deal because you lied about it, right? So we're wrestling. He took me down five times. No, he took me down four times. The score was 10 to three. I mean, 10-7, me, right? From what I remember. But he mm-hmm. took me down. It was two take. It was uh, two takedowns. Then he turned me with that bullshit gut wrench. <laughs> the reason I call it bullshit because JD used to break my ribs and tear my rib cartilage up. John Smith grabbed me. He was so weak. He was like a child to me. Now, everyone knows I'm real freaky strong, right? I got accused of steroids. I didn't know what the hell steroids was. I'm a crack baby, mother. I am anything. <laughs> so I grabbed John Smith. And everything he did, he did it effortlessly, but it was so slick. He took me down again. He, he gut-wrenched me, but it was a gut-wrench to go from hand to hand. The first gut-wrench, he got me. Boom, boom, two points. Mm-hmm. So the second gut-wrench, it was from hand to hand. So now it's like, it's uh, what, two, three, four. It's five, uh, zero, right? We come back to our feet. We're wrestling. He shoots. I didn't ever take him down. I scored off everything he did. I was too strong for him. Mm-hmm. Right? He shot in on that same single. But what I did is I grabbed his wrist. Now I have the Danny Hodge group. I, I crush an apple with my hands. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I grabbed his wrist and I backstep. And as he tried to come under my leg, that little move he does, I don't know what it's called. He comes under my leg, but I'm holding onto his wrist. So I get the two takedown. So now I'm trying to turn him. Can't turn him. Right? We're going again. Um, I remember holding his wrist, right? And I'm holding his wrist. I don't remember exactly all my scores, but I remember it was seven to seven, okay? We had to go overtime. I was like, they're like, dude, everybody's coming up to me. McKee, dude, that's fucking John Smith. He's fucking Olympian and da 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 I'm like, man, fuck this dude, man. They're over there going and getting into it, arguing about, I don't know what the hell. I'm like, man, fuck this dude, man. This guy, you, that, I'm on my mode. And so they go, you, you guys got to go overtime. I go, fuck yeah, let's go overtime. And they're complaining about, well, he's too slippery. He's, he's heavy. He's this, he's that. And the guy goes, hey, it's, it's tied up. It's 7-7. You guys want to go overtime? So John comes back out. And I remember him doing this with his singer. And he had this like kind of like this smooth like flow, right? So what I did, is I grabbed his wrist because he was struggling the whole time with me and my strength. So mm-hmm. I grabbed both of his wrists. Let me tell you what this cocksucker did. He jumps up in the air and he does this with his hands and bang my knuckles together. Nobody's wow. ever done that. So he, he knows he remembers this shit. So now we go off the mat, we come back in and I go, I'm going to do it again. But this time I'm going to shoot when he jumps up in the air. I grab him. And I do it again, but this time he rolls off the wrist. But when he rolls off the wrist, I had already said, I'm going to shoot. 
I shot in. He stopped the shot. He reshot. We're scrambling. And I do the same move that I scored on before. I held his wrist and I threw him from his feet. He had one foot up, one foot down, and he's in on the single. And he's trying to trap um, his elbow behind, because I teach it to this day because it worked on me. He tried to put his elbow behind my, my calf and he was doing this and he was tweaking my knee. So what I did is I started wrestling uh, freestyle and I stepped over and grabbed his wrist and a tight waist and we rolled and I got three points. The score was 10-7, Max was over. Oh hey. my God, all hell breaks loose in this gym. They're arguing, Pat's talking shit and they're like, put him on the scale, put him on the scale. He's way heavier. See, the problem here was I was really a strong kid and I was a, abnormally strong. I tell everybody I'm a crack baby. That's why I'm so fucking strong. So they, they got all steamed up and it came down to McKee, go get on the scale. I said, I'll get on the scale. I don't have a problem with that. I said, I guess the argument was I weighed more than 150 pounds. I got on the scale. I was 151 pounds, right? So after they saw, see, 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 I remember Pat. See, see, told you he was heavier than 150. Told you he was heavier than What the fuck's the big deal? Uh, I told John, I said, you get on the scale. You get on the scale. John did this weird shit and just walked off. I said, no, tell him to get on the scale. You know why? Because he was around 152. He was around 150, 148, 149. See, I didn't give a shit about what you weighed. And you ask anybody. I wrestled any weight class, any division. So I beat John Smith. And then so the rumors started circling. And Tony McKee beat John Smith. Tony, I'm not a bragger at that time. I don't give a fuck about wrestling, man. I don't give a shit. So everybody was talking crazy and da-da-da-da. Now, the Nationals come up. We're Nationals. People heard about me, but nobody knew me, right? First thing John Smith does when he sees me, he walks up to me. He's got this, like, walk. He walks up to me. He has his singing so short. And he goes, hey, McKee, where weight you going? And I looked at him. I go, I don't know. I'm kind of heavy today. And I walked. He said, he came back around. He said, no, no, no. What, what, what weight are you going? What weight are you going? I was like, ah, 136, 142, whatever I weigh, man. I, I ain't cut weight for this shit. I'm just, I'm just here just to do it because my coach wanted me to do it. He's like, oh, 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 well, what, let me, and he looked at my hand, and at that time, they used to write the weight classes, mm -hmm. and I remember, I'm like, why is he looking at my hand as black as I am? I didn't think he could see the ink, and he goes, hey, good luck, and that was the end of that. I placed at the Nationals and didn't make weight. It's like, I said, I ain't doing this shit. I didn't even cut weight. Didn't I you beat Troy there. Steiner in the quarters and then didn't make weight the second day? I don't know who I beat. I didn't care. I didn't want to wrestle. I did that for my coach. You literally just didn't make weight the second day. I told him I wasn't making weight. I said, I'm not weighing in again. I'm leaving. I'm going home. <laughs> Bro, this is the... And I left. And this, this whole story, you know, it has been rumored for years. I think the question comes down to whether or not it was an exhibition or real match. I don't think it really matters because the story's awesome and it's, it's how you remember it. I wanted to just kind of wind down with your influence in MMA as a coach I don't think people understand just how strong it is. So you end up going into MMA. First fight was in 1999. And you and this is the career I think you were meant for. Man, if you were doing the UFC in the 80s, you would have been fucking killer, bro. So, uh, you, you know, the like a Mike Tyson kind of, of, of MMA, yeah. you know, you were that, that hungry. So you go into MMA late. You have a 20-year career. But your son is one of the best prospects in the world. He was the Bellator champ. He just had a really, really close fight with uh, uh, Patricio Pitbull. And correct me if I'm wrong, 
Pico, before he moved to New Mexico, he was training with you guys in those early years as well, right? Yeah. The problem with me is I'm no middle guy. Mm -hmm. I'm straightforward. If I care about you, bro, I'm going to die right next to you. You got to die. That's the kind mm -hmm. of guy I am. And people that know me, why do you think I trained Dan Henderson? No one talks about this. I trained Randy Couture. I trained Chuck Liddell. I trained Tito Ortiz. I trained Vito Belford. I trained the elite guys in MMA, and I was a business owner. I was just still good at what I did. I came into MMA, I think, at 30 years old. I was self-trained. I never had proper teaching. I went undefeated for seven years, but I talked shit to Dana White. Because mm. I knew what they were doing on the back end. You got to remember, no one knew I was in Tito's corner. I was training with Tito. I watched Chuck's career. I, I, I was behind the scene. No one knew. And all I was doing the whole time was just learning, learning. I would have beat the shit out of Jim Fogel. I would have beat the shit out of Sean Shirt. I would have beat the shit out of Matt Hughes. I had ended up training with these guys. It wasn't nice for them. I used to train with Randy, Dan Henderson, uh, uh, what's the big black dude that passed away? Uh, Kimbo? No, no. Uh, Kevin Randleman. Um, mm. I dealt with the elite rampage. Why was I there? Because I was kicking everybody's ass. And see me, I'm a put up or shut up type of guy. So it's easy for me to tell you, yeah, I kicked his ass. No big deal. We were trained. I beat him up real good. Like, Man, why are you always talking shit? No, that happened. What are you talking about? But I had, I've learned that you just, some things you don't say, you just leave it in the gym. But why is people talking about me? See, I was like Mike Tyson, understand. You guys are coming at me. Then when I do it, I'm bad for it. Right. So immediately, I wanted nothing to do with wrestling because Rob Valerio and that whole USA Wrestling, to me at the time, was the biggest fraud charity program there was. I saw inner city kids that had the skill set but could never go to the state, could never go to the nationals because they were poor ass ghetto kids. I started a nonprofit called Fight for Kids. Joey Davis was part of that. If you didn't have money and you could wrestle, you ran my, you, you worked my program. I was the first guy to bring the belts in the wrestling. Mm. I did a tournament called the Warriors Challenge, the Warriors Classic, the Warriors Revenge. Lyndon Campbell over at Temecula High School, they copied everything that I did. USA Wrestling did not want to sanction my tournaments. Why? I had a thousand kids coming from out of state. It wasn't because they me. It was because they liked the award. And the award was belts. I was sponsored by my friends in Pakistan was sending me these children belts. The kids were just eating the belts up. So I would have these tournaments. USA Wrestling did not want me doing tournaments because I was taking away from their funds. And I was buying AAU wrestling cards for everybody. I said, listen, if you can't afford a wrestling USA card, because they were like so much money, and you know, and I know, $25 for a USA wrestling card. And then the parents have to pay $25 a day to watch their kids wrestle. And then the kids in the inner city that don't have any money can't go to a tournament. And you guys have a nonprofit charity uh, uh, wrestling program. And all these kids that qualify to go don't go because you guys won't give them any money or give the team money to support these kids. So what I would do is take the money that I was making from the tournaments and I would send the kids. You put a bulletin out on how many kids that I sent to USA state championship, Cagwall, whatever. I don't remember the hell it was. To the championships that were out of state. Fargo, Reno, uh, the kids' world. I took tribes of kids to go and be a part of that. And I saw what they were doing. I saw the bullshit refing. I saw the, 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 the sly calls. Oh, warning. Oh, stalling. 
And I saw this and then it sent me back to my childhood of all the racial stuff that I had to deal with. And I remember watching Kenny Monday's son wrestle against this tough kid. And they were cheating this kid. They were cheating Kenny Monday's son. And I was like, at that point, I wrestled, I trained Joey Davis and he won his, he won the worlds. And I watched them literally try to cheat him. Mm. And warning, your shoes are untied, one point green. What? This is the fucking finals. These are the elite levels of what? Uh, too much aggression, warning, one point, Joey Davis. Joey's down zero to two. He wins. And at that point, you never see me go to another Reno tournament. I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't wow. take it. I saw the stuff that was racial and I called them out on it. I said, injury time out. Hey, why are you doing this to this kid? I know what you're doing. Sit down, McKee, or I'm going to kick you out of the tournament. I got kicked out of a tournament. We were up in uh, Colton. The good old boys up there in Bakersfield. My kids are all in the finals. I'm watching these, these refs do this shit. And I just, I lost it, man. And they kicked me out and I went to my car and got my gun. And I had to sit there and think about, and then the Colton police pulls up and I go, holy shit. So I ran and I buried my gun in the back in some bushes and I went back and sat down and they said, you're not allowed to go back in there. I said, I understand, sir. And I, I said, I can't do this. I can't do it. I can't do Bro, it. Oh, you are wild. These are crazy fucking stories. This is insane. Yeah. Un but I want to ask you something. Hit me. John DuPont. I was at the Nationals. I was at a tournament, Sunkiss Qualifier. I don't remember what it was. But John DuPont walks up to me. And at this time, what was the guy's name? Um, there was a, a little black guy, uh, Carl. Carl, 125-pounder. I used to kick his ass. He was sponsored by DuPont, I believe. DuPont came up to me, and he said, you want to wrestle for me? Weird-ass dude, his big-ass nose. He's real frail. And I go, who are you? He says, I'm the owner of Foxcatchers. I think it was Foxcatchers. Fox it was Sunkiss and Foxcatchers. I remember that. Maybe it was a Sunkiss tournament and Foxcatcher was him. And I said, uh, um, he says, I'll pay you. You're really good. And I like to take nothing but the best. And I looked at him and I said, uh, well, I have a girlfriend. He says, I'm not, I'm not concerned with your girlfriend. He says, I'll pay you $30,000 a year to wrestle for me on my compound. As soon as he said fucking compound, I'm like, can I bring my girlfriend? He said, no. I said, well, no, I don't want to fucking wrestle for you. And I don't give a shit about the money. And he walked off with his decrepit looking ass off into the wind somewhere. And then, like, they candy coated that movie. I didn't see Foxcatcher, but I knew what was going on because I used to hear the blacks talk about it. Hmm. Kevin, Kevin, what, uh, what was the coach? Kevin Jackson, he was the, the coach. Was it Kevin Jackson when Cahuto won the Olympics? Uh, uh, yeah. Kevin Jackson. So what I did is I started paying black wrestlers to come into my tournament. I pay them $15, $2,000 to just do a clinic. Mm -hmm. I had that kind of money. I mean, I was loaded. I, 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 was, I had a lot of money at this time. So all the money I made from wrestling, I put back into the wrestling programs. So I would pay Kevin uh, Jackson to come in. And I'm not, I know he's still involved in wrestling. And I knew what was going on with the Penn State. And he was at Iowa. His dream was to go back and coach and open up an Arizona program. I didn't know how much money that would take. But I said, look, I'll sponsor it. And then he, 
you know, things was done. I, I like I said, I gotta be careful. I don't want to mess up anybody's careers, but I was told Arizona don't want your nigger shit. Right. And he said, and this wasn't from him, but I asked him about it and he looked at me and he almost started crying. At this time, I'm I'm the goat. I got money. I got money from I'm I'm successful at it. I have a house, motorcycle cars. So I looked at him and I said, I heard what was said that you would lose all the sponsors if you bought a black program like uh, Bobby Douglas did at Arizona ASU. And he looked at me and it was like, kind of like, how do you know? I said, do you know why I brought you out here? I brought you out here because I want to patronize the blacks that are not being taken care of. Kenny Monday should have had a fucking shoe line. Kevin Jackson should have had a shoe line. So I was attacking USA Wrestling. Rob Valerio was freaked out about me because I would be like, hey, why don't these blacks have shoe lines? John Smith still has a shoe line. Kelsander still has a shoe line. All these white athletes have a shoe line. Why is it that there's no black to shoe on? Well, the accomplishments. Kenny Money was a fucking Olympian. Why mm. doesn't he have a shoe line? Kevin Jackson was an Olympian. Why doesn't he have a shoe line? Well, well, they're no longer wrestling, but they're coaches and they're still in the game. John Smith, it's the same thing. Son, it's the same thing. So I started attacking USA Wrestling because I saw the racial stuff that nobody was paying attention to. And what I did is I held everybody that was white, that was my friend, accountable to not, you're not going to say nothing. You guys know what this shit is. And you're not going to say nothing. So then I became, get him out of here. He's crazy. We're not going to sponsor his tournaments. I sat down with AAU. They would write me checks to keep doing my program. I made sure everybody had an AAU card so they could come to my tournament and wrestle. I lured them in with the belts, the awards, and I loved them with bringing the celebrities. I had, I had a, I had uh, I had all the celebrities come to the tournament, sign autographs for the kids from the Tito Ortiz's to the Dan Henderson's. I did that. The minute I became the celebrity, they called the police on me and said uh, it was uh, a fire hazard. I was completely done with wrestling. Wow. So, you know. Dude, Antonio McKee, you've had a journey. And I, I love that you're you're always thinking about giving back and, and helping wherever you can, because you're as a coach, your passion comes through because you've seen there and gone the good and the bad route. And now you can help guide kids against that. I think as we wind down here, man, last question that I always ask everybody is how did wrestling change your life? And you've really answered that throughout this, but anything you'd like to add to that? Man, wrestling was a spiritual journey, regardless of the good people, regardless of the bad people. It's what I took from it. And I learned discipline. I learned sacrifice. I learned hard work. And eventually the shit pays off. It kept me out of jail. There was things that I should have been doing that I didn't do. I was at wrestling practice and I was too tired to go do what I should have been doing on the streets. And I just said, screw that, I'll do it later. People would die left and right. And I devoted my whole life to wrestling to be the best wrestler that I could be. And then I went through that racial stuff that I saw and I just couldn't do it anymore. And I went into business. And you know what? If it wasn't for wrestling, I would be dead. No questions. I would be dead. So I love the sport. I might not like the people who run the sport, but mm-hmm. I love the sport. I've got some great, great, great white people in my life that 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 saw it in me. And they stuck by my side. Even when I was acting like an ignorant nigga, they knew that once I would change, I would be a beautiful human being. And look, look at what I do, man. I take the worst and I show them the right way. I don't have a lot of patience for the bull crap, but what you're going to get out of me is true love. When I cry, I'm killing somebody today. 
I can cry now because I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful for the people that were there. And the stories are just now coming out. They inducted me into the Hall of Fame in Norwalk 20 years later because I was a minister to society. But so I understood Mike Tyson. We come from the same cloth and then we became, we became close throughout our friendships mm-hmm. with the people that were pushing us to do the right thing. Gus Damano was his guy. And when he lost that, he was hurt. I had so many people in my life that I never felt the pain of losing them, but I felt the pain of not doing what they needed me to do. So wrestling was, I tell everybody anywhere around the world, wrestling is not only just about the sport of wrestling, but it gives you all the qualifications and the qualities that you need in life, which is discipline, sacrifice, self-confidence, because you're out there on that mat. It may be a team, but you're out there by yourself. When you can do and accomplish those things, that's life. That's life. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I believe in God. And I practice doing to others as I want them to do to me. But if you meet me with fire, I'm going to meet you with fire. And it's going to be much bigger than your fire. So I stay away from those people. (laughs) And I just focus on the people who like smoke. (laughs) Antonio McKee, perfect way to wind it down. It's an honor to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time, man. It's this message is going to hit a lot of people. And I really appreciate you coming on here and sharing it with me today. Hey man, I appreciate you having me. And, and I, I, you know, there's another part two to my life, but again, I'm sorry for getting emotional. I've never done an interview where I was about to cry or I had googly eyes. I mean, you saw it. I was trying to hold that shit in, man. Man, Thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm thankful for you, man. And that, and people realize the passion, man. I'm not a bad person. I just didn't have the tools. I had the toolbox, but I didn't have the tools. Right. Now I got the toolbox and the tools, and I just want to help everybody. You didn't have the operator's manual. You had the, uh, right. you had the tools. Where were you at in my life? <laughs> Dude, man, I, uh, man, I just, I, I, you know, all f- trying to figure it out as we go, man. Uh, trying to, yeah. trying to, try to make the right decisions. Thank you so much, Antonio. You have a great right, day, man. sir. Thank you. All right, man. Bye. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wrestling Changed My Life. This episode was brought to you by the Frog Ninja Wrestling Camp going down Tuesday, June 21st through Thursday, June 23rd in Oxford, PA. Register now at frogninjawrestlingclub.com. And to see the full video component of this interview, go to our YouTube channel, Wrestling Changed My Life.